Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, it's the 600th edition of Little Atoms, and I'm joined by Laura Cumming to talk about her new book, On Chapel Sands, My Mother and Other Missing Persons. Laura Cumming has been the chief art critic of The Observer since 1999. Her book, The Vanishing Man, in pursuit of Velasquez, was Book of the Week on Radio 4, the Wall Street Journal Book of the Year, and the New York Times bestseller. And it also won the 2017 James Tate Black Biography Prize and was published to critical acclaim. You may also have heard us talk about it on a previous Little Atoms. Her first book, A Face to the World on Self-Portraits, was described by Nick Hornby as brilliant, fizzing with ideas, not just about art but human nature and by Julian Barnes as that rare item, an art book where the text is so enthralling that the pictures almost seem like an interruption. And Laura's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is On Chapel Sands, My Mother and Other Missing Persons. Laura, welcome back to Little Atoms. Uh, it's wonderful to be back. Thank you very much, Neil, for inviting me. So this book, a little way into it, there is a photograph, which I want to talk about first, of a young girl on a beach with a man who's rather nattily dressed. Tell us about that photograph and who those people are. The photograph's a tiny thing, about the size of a credit card, black and white. It shows my grandfather, George Elston, sitting on the beach, very, as you say, naturally dressed, very Sunday best. So he's wearing a dark silk suit and there's a Panama hat. And This is interesting to me because he was a travelling soap salesman. So this is definitely him got up to, you know, really look as good as he can look. And he's sitting on the sandy beach, Chapel Sands, the title of the book, and he's got a a child with him. And the child is about two, and she is being held firmly still for the camera, olden times, 1920s, you know, the long exposure times. And she is just slightly moving, and if it was possible to say of a two-year-old child that she looks depressed, she looks depressed. She wants to be away from the shot. And this photograph was tucked in the back, on its own, almost as if hidden, in my mother's family album, classic sort of, you know, black family album with snapshots and gold across one corner of the cover. And the album has always been a mystery to me, or had until now, perhaps, been a mystery to me because of the fact that it's a very small, modest album, only 22 pages, black, thick black pages, kind of thing you had those little transparent corners for putting the picture in, four of them for each picture. 
And even though it's a very small book and not many pages, half the book is empty. And there are no photographs of my mother before the age of three and none of her after the age of 13. And the crucial thing to know about this photograph that you're asking about, Neil, is that she's not three in that picture. She's younger than that. So where does she fit in the sequence? And on the back of the picture, it says her name. It says her name, um, except that it's not her name. In the course of the family album, she is called Betty. And she was Betty all her life. Uh, until she met my father and actually changed her name to Elizabeth because she couldn't stand the name Betty, Betty Grable, Betty Davis. She didn't like the name, so and she didn't like the connotations it held of her past as a child. But on the back of the photograph is written George and Grace. George and Grace. And yet this is indeed her. So this is partly where my search begins. How come she's called Grace? And if she didn't come to live with my grandfather and grandmother until she was three how come he already knows her and why does she have this different name and whose handwriting is it on the back of the photograph grace to become betty was adopted by george and his wife vida when she was three and they were quite old they were they were 49 years old and for a child of three this is not obvious you know, uh, 1929 this was, this adoption. And I don't think my mother would have noticed, and she didn't really notice that they were considerably older than all the other parents, probably for another decade. But yes, they were. Not only were they quite old for those days, but they had been married for just over 20 years with no children. And so the fact that they adopted her at all after 20 years, I always found quite strange, and, and so did she. So there's another mystery. Now, this book is ostensibly about when she's three, your mother is kidnapped. Um, And one could pick up the book and think it was going to be the story of, you know, a kidnapping in the sort of Lindbergh baby style. But in some respects, if I may say so, the, the kidnapping is almost a MacGuffin. The story is about behind the kidnapping, who it was that did it and why that was rather than the actual story of the kidnapping. But let's talk about what actually happened on that day when she was taken. Uh, It was an autumn day, October day, weekday in 1929. It was uh, slightly unfeasibly warm. I know that because the police report of that day makes it clear that she had no shoes on, she had no coat or cardigan. It was rather a warm day. She was on this beach, um, Chapel St Leonard's, which is uh, about seven miles from Skagness on the Lincolnshire coast. And the crucial thing about this beach is that it is absolutely flat. It runs for 20 miles without a cove or a rock or any place you could hide a child. But yet this little girl, my mother, was on the beach with her adoptive mother, Vida. She was called Vida Elston. And they're playing away in the sands and they'd been there for some time. The tide had receded a very long way out, so she was not clearly not in the water when she disappeared. But in a matter of moments, she vanished. There weren't any footsteps to help determine what had happened and there are no witnesses to the incident. Purportedly, there are no witnesses to the incident except those who talk about what kind of dress she was wearing and what she looked like and so on. And I have the view, and it's 
very obvious, as you rightly say, Neil, from the beginning of the book. I knew that whoever had taken her must have known her. And I think anyone reading this, and I make this very clear, anyone reading this will realise that because there wasn't a sound. I mean, she was just playing and then she was gone and, you know, she would have screamed if it hadn't been someone she knew. So clearly it was something to do with her family and naturally anyone reading it will know that she's going to turn out to be adopted. You don't know this at the beginning, and neither did she, because I'm trying to follow it the way she experienced her life, to try to imagine what it was like for her. Yeah, I mean, your mother doesn't realise this has happened until, well, she's in her 50s. She's 60. We'll come back to that a little later on. Tell us something about George and Vida, first of all. George, um, as I say, I'm writing it very much from my mother's perspective because of the fact that my mother's childhood was fascinating to me when I was growing up. And she wrote a memoir of her early life for me as my 21st birthday present. And she is the reason I've written the book. Her writing is wonderful. I would say that, but I think everybody who's read the book has commented very much on it. Yeah, we should say the memoir is excerpted. The memoir is excerpted all the way through, and it's wonderful. And she described in the memoir, but also to me as I was growing up, this terrifically angry, uh, irritable, bossy, uh, bronchitic man, George, her father, and her mother, Vida, who was this very... who I knew. Um, George died long before I was born, but Vida was very gentle and very Edwardian and very gracious and very patient and so on. And uh, the relationship between them, I think, gave my mother a strong feeling that men were... You know, they ruled the house. They ruled the house, and they shouldn't. And quite a lot of formative moments from her childhood in the book. Um, he had a very bad temper, and he was away during the week. He would go away on a Monday morning, and he'd come back on Friday with his suitcase full of samples of soap. And I think I always had the impression that my mother breathed out when he'd gone, um, and perhaps Vida did too. I don't know, but I, I certainly think it was a very strange. Childhood. There's a photograph in the book, and photographs are crucial to the whole story because, in a way, the book is a campaign to make you look harder at, make all of us, me particularly, to look harder at these albums to try to work out what's really going on in these pictures, not to take them at face value. There's a beautiful photograph of George and Vida in the 1910. And they're newlyweds in Bradford. They're living in this two up, two down in Bradford. And in the photograph, they're out on this country walk. And it's a very beautiful photograph. It could have been taken by any of the great photographers of that era, I think. And, you know, he's very handsome and he's coming along with his cane and his beautifully dressed again and she's walking you know she's got a feather in her hat a lovely basket and and at the same time I've always thought it very significant he's walking directly towards the camera with a very military look to him and he fought in the Boer War and she's looking down in a way and is very shy and you know we can we can enter black and white any photographs but particularly black and white photographs that seem to speak of the past and invent the characters in them and you know I could actually match the picture with what I know of them however is it right to see them that way that's the point you know pictures of the terrible photographs have a terrible tendency to make us think we know people too well when we don't so betty's kidnapped and as it turns out relatively quickly recovered and returned to to george and vida as i said the story is not really about that and subsequently her life at home which i think we can assume towards the beginning of the book is because she's been kidnapped and they want to be protective. It's very, very cloistered. She 
doesn't go very far from the house. She sometimes makes friends with local children, but then is sort of banned from seeing them quite quickly. So tell us about what Betty's early life, well, what her life was like. Yes, it was absolutely... Cloisters is an excellent word for it. She was living in a tiny hamlet, about three or 400 people, and her house was on the edge of the, the village. And the village, centre of the village was, as she used to say, it was like Mecca. It was this place you never could get to. It's a forbidden and beautiful and remarkable place. And when I say that, I'm talking about, you know, a grocer's shop and a draper's, but to her they were foreign and magnificent and beautiful places. And she was not allowed to associate with any other, other kids. And she was kept in winter very much inside the house, and she remembers always the curtains being drawn, you know, at two in the afternoon in winter. I'm sure that has something, as you say, to do with the kidnapped prying eyes and so on. And there was a garden with a big sycamore tree, and my grandfather built her a swing. And this is how she saw the world. The zenith point of that swing, she could see over the top of a very high hedge and see the villagers coming and going. And the book contains um, watercolour paintings of these, to me, unbelievably kind of archaic figures. The shepherd with the long white beard who looks like George Bernard Shaw coming along, you know, the old man with the bicycle prodding his cows forward and and so on. It's very, very rural and, to me, very Hardy-esque. I think she, she always loved the work of Hardy, and I, I think that I see it in, in the way she describes it. But he couldn't keep her there forever, so she does eventually manage to get away to school. But there were anomalies for her, and two great anomalies relate to, as you say, the, the interactions with young people. And one was the, the, um, the farmer who lived across the road who had a dairy, and he had two daughters, and they were occasionally allowed to come and play, and then there was this terrible day when they came and banged on the door, you know, and is Betty going to come and play out? And her mother said no, and not only that, but she's never playing out again. And she was never allowed to speak to them again, and they lived across the road, and they went to school with her in a tiny little dame school next door with about ten pupils, and she was never allowed to talk to them again. So that was absolutely explicable um, imprisonment. And the other great uh, mystery, and this was the mystery of my childhood too, because we didn't find the answer out until she was 60, was the bread fan, which in those days the bread was you know, um, milled and baked in little outlying villages, and a van would come round to these tiny rural um, seaside hamlets and you know, door-to-door and come every day. And there were four little houses in this terrace, and she lived in number one, and it delivered only to two, three, and four. And she never knew why. She discovered when she was 60. And if you want to find out why, you're going to have to buy the book, because that's one of the things we're not going to talk about. But what I do want to talk about is there is a... that's very significant to the rest of the story. There's an incident on a bus. The incident is this sort of shattering thing that happens in my mother's life. And even now, she's 93, she, she can still be very distressed when she's remembering this. She got a scholarship. She eventually got free of George and she got a scholarship to go to Skegness Grammar. And along this coastline, past Billy Butlins, which has just opened and so on, she's on a green country bus... Um, it goes there in the morning and it comes back in the afternoon and it's the only bus so it already had a kind of associated horror to it you know what if she missed the bus how would she ever get home back from grammar school and on this bus one day she's going home with a lot of little school friends and some villagers and so on and a woman at the front of the bus 
that she was at the back, stood up and walked down the aisle towards her. A woman to her, very much from the 19th century, dressed in long black clothes with a black hat and so on. And the woman comes up to her and says, your grandmother wants to see you. And my mother didn't have a grandmother. So she was absolutely horrified by this and turned away and was very afraid and so on. And the woman had a tiny photograph of her, black and white again, even smaller, and she showed it to my mother, who, I think before she looked away, she she took it in, sufficient to see that it was herself. So this woman, who she'd never met, didn't know at all, and who was terrifying to her, had a photograph of her. And photographs in this period are not just, you know, we're not in the iPhone age. The idea that somebody owned a photograph of her that had been to a developer's in Skegness and come back through the system and probably lived in an album of its own was enough, I suppose, to give give her the ocular proof that somehow that woman did know something. So she goes, she gets off the bus eventually, but they, they actually were on this bus together all the way through to the stop where my mother got up at Chapel St. Leonard's. And she goes home to her mother and, you know, immediately terrified and rushes in to tell her this terrible thing's happened. And Vida, my grandmother, who was such a gentle soul, obviously this was very traumatic to her and she had no idea how to deal with it. So she told my mother to go out and cycle on her bicycle. And when she came back, my grandfather had somehow been got from somewhere and they you know they took her into it this is a scene anyone listening to this can picture the cold front parlor that nobody ever uses you know the best furniture the willow pattern and all the rest of it and they sit opposite each other and my grandfather says you must never speak to that woman on the bus again and gives her a terrific telling off but doesn't say anything about who the woman on the bus is and only that the onus is on her and never to speak to her again and my mother felt this was tremendously unjust because clearly she hadn't spoken to this woman. She was terrified of her. They explain only this much, that when she was little, they took her in out of sort of charitable instinct. So the knowledge that she was adopted came to her as both a threat, don't talk to this woman again, and also as a very condescending gesture of, you know, rather proud generosity on their part, as if she was just a waif and stray and they'd picked her up off the street. So the two things, I mean, it's like this with everything in life, isn't it? The way something is said and the context in which it's said can mean more even than the sentence itself. And I think that that point she ceased to feel connected to her parents on discovering that they were her adopted parents, except that that was not entirely true. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, there's there's a lot, again, that we're not going to talk about, that we're not going to give away, because this book has revelation after revelation. But yeah, it turns out that that fact, that she was adopted, is not strictly true either. But I want to take us right forward now to, as you said, your mother's 60. Let's talk about the circumstances of her finding out that she's been, that she was kidnapped. Well, implausibly, I accept. She's sitting there, it's her 60th birthday, and the mail is on the table, and we were sitting in the Scottish borders where my parents lived, and, um, and then, you know, we opened everything, and then there was just this one letter that was in an, un, an unknown hand. And it was, a, it, was a, it was obviously a foreign hand. I don't think we'd ever seen anything from America or the New World, or, you know, we just knew... I mean, everybody knows what a French handwriting looks like from school exchanges or something, but we'd never seen anything right quite like that handwriting and um, when we opened it it said we're here and we're going to come and see you and 
you know, nothing else. And it was signed by these two women who quite clearly knew who she was. And she had the faintest idea. And my mother's childhood, I think, gave her always a poverty of expectation. I think that's a very common thing. She has never thought anything good was about to happen. She has very, very modest hopes. So when she saw this letter, she thought it might be somebody who knew something about her past. She didn't even think that they might be in any way related to her. And I remember being so worried for her that she might get... It might be another terrible thing, a terrible wrong thing, or a mistaken identity, because there's a lot about the false starts in the book. And um, so we all kind of had that phrase that everybody uses, second cousin, you know. So meaning what I don't know, you always have to look it up, what's a second cousin, I don't know, twice removed or three times removed or four or whatever. And um, they were coming to Edinburgh and they wanted to meet her. And in the antique methods of those times, because this is seen in the late 1980s, we couldn't get them on the phone because they'd already left the hotel in London where they were, so we just had to write to a kind of address that they'd given us and make a date for a particular day and pray that they'd turn up. And and they did. And they did. And they came into the foyer of this hotel in Edinburgh and my mother looked at them and she knew, I think, immediately, because she looked exactly like her, that one of them must be her sister. So this is a story so common as to make me feel, every time I tell it, very moved, because I don't think there's anybody that I have ever met who does not know someone whose actual past was taken away from them, whose relatives were unknown to them, who was deprived in some way of the true knowledge of who they were. And, you know, everybody knows somebody who's... You know, mother was actually supposedly their sister or their sister was supposedly their mother or their uncle, quotes, was in fact their mother's lover and they were the, you know, offspring of somebody completely different. And I think it's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was because I don't... I was writing a story that I think everybody knows somehow instinctively from inside. You, you, you know how that might feel. You've seen it in a film. Or, more likely, I think, you know someone who knows this kind of... Tale. So, so the the meeting, the moment of um, encounter between the two sisters, and that's the stuff of television series now. You know, lots of people are trying to find out who they were and who they come from. And I suppose for me, the theme continues a little bit in the book, very much. In fact, not a little bit. Of a, the theme is very strong in the book. Does this matter? If you are related by blood, does it matter? You could say it's the old nature nurture debate, Neil. You know, what happened to her as a child, who she was related to, how much did any of this make her? And I hope, in a way, that the book is cathartic, but I also hope it's a little bit inspiring to people who've had these experiences or had a really tough and dreadful childhood because my mother, in the course of the book, makes herself up completely. She just invents herself and, having had the most terrible childhood, really became the most wonderful mother. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. 
Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Laura Cumming. We're talking about her new book on Chapel Sands, My Mother and Other Missing Persons. And Laura, I'm going to take a step away from the story of your mother for a bit. And I want to talk about, you've already mentioned that the book features a number of photographs and uh, analysis with an art critic's eye of those photographs. Um, and there's also some paintings that you know thematically are linked to what's going on in the story. And I wanted to talk about a couple of those paintings, those being Bruegel's Fall of Icarus and the Degas portraits of the, the Italian family. Tell us why you... Well, something about those paintings and why you chose them. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bruegel is uh, the first painting my mother ever owns. She comes from a house with no paintings, no images at all, though she's an artist. She came from a house with no books either, and she's a wonderful writer and reader. So this is part of the inspiration of the book, is to see how far you can get from a really rough and null and void start, really. And she goes, finally gets away to Nottingham College of Art, and the first painting she ever owned, the first image she ever owned, was Bruegel's The Fall of Icarus, which listeners may um, know it's the wonderful painting of the ploughman, um, ploughing this very, very fantastic set of furrows in, right up at the front of the image, and far away in the distance is the, the sun, away over the sea, and there's a marvellous galleon, and all kinds of things are going on in the painting. And the very last thing you see, brilliantly done by Bruegel, he slows you down to follow the action, and there's a point at which there's a shepherd looking up at the sky, and you look up and think, why would he be looking up there? And then you look down, tiny pair of legs disappearing into the sea, so small you hardly see them at all, and that is the fate of Icarus, who, as you know, his you know wings were melted by the sun. He's felled by his own hubris. And this painting completely fascinated my mother, and then it fascinated me, and in fact it's hanging in the room we're sitting in now, and I've always had it with me. And the reason that it's in the book, there are many reasons to do with villagers and villagers and things that are going on at the same time as other things are happening... W.H. Auden's great poem about this painting talks about the fact that tragedies occur while somebody else is, you know, opening a window or dusting a shelf or someone's ploughing a field and nobody notices. So the theme of nobody noticing, obviously, is clearly there and the, obviously proposes itself because it took the whole of a village to keep the secrets of my mother's life and I think nobody's looking and what's happening to her. But also for me, it's an important painting because it was painted hundreds of years ago it's practically medieval and yet I feel it's tremendously modern to me somehow because it shows the landscape so brilliantly painted by Bruegel that it's now 
this partridge here, that cow there, the furrows in the field, the fantastic shadow paintings of shadows and leaves and all the rest of it, could be instantly now. So it's like the world never changes, but the people in the world come and go. There's the medieval peasant and there's Icarus. Well, nobody has, nobody flies with wax and wings now. But so the characters shift in this theatre set. The theatre set is there and it never changes. The world doesn't change, but the people come and go and I think, for me, that's very analogous with the beach in the book, where many incidents take place in the course of this story. Some of them way in the past, some of them in the present, including my own life and my own knowledge of that beach and the things that went on on that beach. And I feel that Bruegel connects me to the past in a way that very few other paintings do. They make, it makes me realise that I really am walking through the same world that these people were who did these strained, outlandish and terrible in some cases things in the 1920s and 30s. We're all still in the same universe and, and I'm connected to them. So that's the significance of that, though it goes deepest, particularly the plan. <laughs> um, and the, the Degas painting as well. Yeah, the Degas painting is a very famous painting that listeners may have seen. It's a, almost as large as life. It's called the Bellelli family, and it shows what you can only describe as the most disunited family <laughs> in the whole of art history. And they're standing in a rather beautiful, elegant apartment at the end of the 19th century. And the mother, a very upright and angry-looking woman who is looking you know, very harshly out of view, not looking at us, not remotely interested in us, and she has two children in spotless pinafores, and one of them is sweetly looking at us as if having no knowledge of what's actually going on. The other side of the room is the father, and he is, I think, almost unique. No one that I can think of that ever painted a scene like this apart from Dega. He is sitting with his back to us. He just doesn't want to be in the picture. He's sort of almost like he's been sent to his room. <laughs> he's sitting in this brown armchair on the other side, and he obviously doesn't want to know the family. They don't want to talk to him. Marital strife like you wouldn't believe. Um, she's actually pregnant, in fact, and she was the um, painter, Degas' own aunt. So he did know what was going on in this terrible marriage. And I've used that painting in the book. I've, uh, it's reproduced in the book because it made me think a lot about... Who is taking a photograph and what is the relationship between the people in a portrait, in this case people who knew Degas, looking at Degas, and in the case of the photograph I'm comparing it with, it's a photograph taken of George and Vida by my mother. And George never, ever let anyone take photographs, but on this rare occasion she's come back from being a student in Nottingham and she's photographed. And to me, the echoes are so clear, so, so it shows... My grandmother Vida looking back at her daughter and George absolutely furiously not wanting to be in the picture and turning away and so on. And you know, people do, there's a deliberateness about the way we pose for the camera, even now in the iPhone age where you know you could take 15 billion shots in a minute. We do still present ourselves if we know we are being photographed. And that's one of the things I wanted to write about in the book. You know, look at those images and, and think to yourself, now, who's taking the photograph and why is the character in the photograph behaving like that towards them? And who isn't in the photograph and why aren't they there? And why is Aunt Ethel, who nobody liked or ever talked to, in this picture? And what's... You know, it's like albums can be these narratives that you could examine and analyse in this way and know maybe more or guess more about your own family. We've talked about the story in the book, and I want to talk about the story behind the book because you know how this book came together. This is a story that the revelations in this book have happened 
all through your life you've you've found out more and more stuff so let's talk about and also the the, the incorporation of your mother's autobiographical story in here as well that she wrote herself I want to talk about how this book came together for you it's a really excellent question which nobody has asked me and it's the right perfect question for me because the book only exists it's like it's like a sort of um pier that I constructed for my mother's show if you like so I really only wrote the book because I wanted my mother's words to appear in print and I had hoped all my life that she would since I was 21 that she would continue to tell this story and she would add to it when more amazing things would be dis- were discovered when she was 40 50 60 because the story kept changing and she didn't and I tried and tried <laughs> to encourage her to do this and in her 80s um, I tried really hard because by now we did know almost everything, though not crucially the ending of the story, which she still actually herself doesn't know because she doesn't really want to, I think, now know more. But And I'd do these charts, you know, with kind of yellow post-it notes saying, and what about we write about your green shoes here or we write about the bit where you get to Nottingham here and we discover what happened in Edinburgh in that hotel here and so on. And she would write maybe two or three lines and then she would stop. And it gradually became obvious to me that she was never, ever going to do this story herself. And so I asked her blessing and... She was very puzzled, and she remains very puzzled. Why would you want to do this? I have led, a very moving phrase, I think, for me, I've led such an insignificant life, and nobody's life is insignificant. Everybody's life is a story of some sort. Perhaps it hasn't got an ending yet. God forbid it should, that we're all still alive, and so on. But she couldn't, I realised, eventually write it because it was too damaging for her, I think, to keep going endlessly back to the past. And also, when I started to, to write it, I wanted to find out really whether the, the stories that she told, which always enthralled me, and I hope would enthrall a reader of these amazingly weird characters in this village, very sort of under Milkwood, you know, all sorts of the grave digger and the baker, and you know, they're very, very remarkable figures in this amazing village. But were they exactly... This is the child's query or the adolescent query to everything you were ever told, you should be questioning it. Is it really, were they really like that? Was George really so terrible? Was he so terrible that she never mentioned him ever again, you know, when she grew up? And of course, no, everything turns and turns and every story is true, but then there is always another story. So it's in a way the book has become for me a, um, a method for... It was a great opportunity to, to, to be allowed to write it. It gave me the chance to discover that these people were never, ever quite the way they looked to her, and they were never as terrible as they seemed. And you know, it's, so it's a book, of, I suppose, about trying to think again, not just look again. To finish off, then, I mean, I know you've just said that your mother doesn't even know, you know, the final revelations at the end of the book, but she knows that the book has been published let's talk about what her reaction has been bewilderment absolutely bafflement why would they do that why would anyone publish <laughs> and um uh she had a letter i'll never be grateful enough to the american publishers scribners in new york and they rent they wrote their proper proper kind of they're very dignified american publishers and they sent her from fifth avenue this fantastic letter saying you are a great writer and you know and i've got it you know framed by her bed she never looks at it and i think she doesn't really believe it and she can't understand why it would be 
um, why they would feel that. And in a way, the book is partly to try to discover... I spoke about the poverty of expectation, but I think also the diminution of confidence. I think that she was a, clearly a really gifted child and her father was so busy trying to kind of defend her from anyone who was going to steal her again that he didn't even really notice. So I think she's still mocked, and this is what I believe. Of course you can throw these things off, of course you can. But some things are so formative, and the feeling that you are a humble person who really ought to be seen and not heard, which was his great phrase, common phrase, um, I think it stayed with her, and I just think she's baffled. What she does feel strongly about is funny enough is the photographs I think to see to see herself as a child in print in reproduction is to discover was to discover a bit of bit more status than I think she ever felt she had tell us about her um, seeing it in the in the in the observer yes that was a, a remarkable a remarkable thing that the observer newspaper where I work enlarged I was saying at the beginning of this interview that these pictures are, you know, they really are... T- everybody will know what I'm talking about. You know, they're not much bigger than a stamp in some cases. And this particular picture is an inch by an inch and a quarter, that tiny. And they blew it up to cover the whole of the new review cover of the, of the Observer. Huge thing. And it could take it, my goodness, this little tiny shot of a child on a bicycle, aged, you know, three or four... And, you know, it's a, it's a very, very modest bicycle. It's a very modest yard she's in, you know. But he could really take a photograph. He was a wonderful photographer. And that's a huge theme in the book, the fact that he really should have been, would have been an artist. In modern times, he would have been a photographer. But nobody recognised that. It came bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And the picture editor on The Observer kept saying, oh, yeah, this is a great shot, you know. I mean, and it doesn't lose anything. The bigger it gets... The more remarkable it seems, the more we saw in the picture and so on. And it was very important for my mother to see that because she so loathed her father. The idea that any of his photographs of her were taken out of any kind of feeling of affection, I think she found baffling. But when she saw this one huge, she could see not only was he a great photographer, but that he, he he really had feelings for her. It wasn't... It's a picture taken out of love, and that was a massive revelation for her. So I've been talking to Laura Cumming. We've been talking about her book, On Chapel Sands, My Mother and Other Missing Persons, which is out in the UK from Chatter and Windus. Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. And thank you so much to Neil. Um, I'm a huge admirer of your podcast, and I believe this is the 600 edition, and I am so honoured. Thank you very much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.